0: environmental
1: conversations
0: on creative arts scholarship and teaching this this is is ecocast Ecocast. hello and welcome to ecocast the official podcast of the association for the study of literature and the environment i'm lindsay Jolivet,
1: and i am brandon golem
0: and thank you for joining us for another episode Today, we are joined by Laura Wright and Jessica Corey to discuss their newly released edited volume titled Appalachian Ecocriticism and the Paradox of Place. Laura is professor of English at Western Carolina University where she specializes in postcolonial literatures and theory, ecocriticism, and animal studies. Her monographs include Writing Out All of the Camps, mm-hmm. J. M. Kotze's Narratives of Displacement, Wilderness into Civilized Shapes, reading the postcolonial environment and the vegan studies project food animals and gender in the age of terror. She's also a painter and long distance runner. Jessica teaches at Western Carolina University and is a PhD candidate specializing in Native American, African American, and environmental literature at the University of North Carolina Greensboro. She is the editor of Mountains piled upon mountains, Appalachian nature writing in the Anthropocene and co-editor with Laura of this edited volume we'll discuss today, Appalachian Ecocriticism and the Paradox of Place. Her creative and scholarly writings have been published in the North Carolina Literary Review, North Dakota Quarterly, Northern Appalachia Review, and other fine publications. Originally from southeastern Ohio, she currently lives in Silva, North Carolina. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you so
2: much. It's wonderful yeah. to be here. Yeah, yeah thank really, you.
1: Really. Really excited to to relive my grad school days in the <laughs> mountains of Appalachia and PA. So, yeah.
2: All right. Before
0: we get started with discussing your awesome manuscript, I'm going to first discuss a little bit of Appalachian, though also global, folklore. Today, I'd like to talk a little bit about cryptids.
2: Yes! Because... <laughs> I'm sorry. I got really excited. My spouse and I went on a cryptid museum tour last summer all over West Virginia and I wish you could see it in my office. I have a map that Scott Honeycutt over at ETSU has made of cryptids all over Appalachia. Um, and I'm sorry, I totally cut off your folklore with my, (laughs) (laughs) but
0: that's part of it. I think a lot of people maybe don't realize how many famous cryptids are actually Appalachian. So in sort of the old forests of the Appalachian mountains, there are numerous cryptids And you could say, you know, that stories are a result of sort of them being very dense old woods with mountains, so people, you know, it sparks the imagination that it might be scary there. Or, you know, you could say that it's just that those creatures like dense woods to live in, and so it's a perfect hiding spot for the creatures. So that's why Appalachia has so many. Mm -hmm. Um, But two of the most well-known cryptids of Appalachia are Bigfoot and Mothman, Mm -hmm. both very large in popular culture. So I think probably people, many of our listeners will have heard of them, even if they're not from Appalachia. And as you were saying, every year, the Bigfoot Festival takes place in North mm-hmm. Carolina, as well as there are many museums. And the Mothman Festival takes place in West Virginia. Those both also have museums. And then while these uh, beings do reside sort of in the larger Cultural consciousness in Western media. I would say they also reside, sort of, really specifically in Appalachia because of this sort of space of festivals that celebrate them, museums that catalog them. They're, although they are well known in you know any any number of Netflix shows, you know, movies, mm-hmm. stories, they are actually very locally cared for and created. So <clears throat> I think cryptids are a fun one for everyone to go look into some more if you're interested in. Appalachia and Appalachian culture and sort of the history of the mountains. And yes, Jessica loves them, which is
2: great. <laughs> I do. I do. I grew up um roughly about an hour from Point Pleasant, which is where the Mothman statue is. I have written multiple poems um, about Mothman because I'm weird. Um, but it's it's uh-huh. very much a local, you know, kind mm-hmm. of thing. You know, you can get like the cappuccino with like the cherries for the Mothman eyes, like right down the street. It's <laughs> it's lots of exciting stuff. People should definitely go.
3: I was going to say too. You know, a lot of the um, a lot of the ones I think associated with with Appalachia also come from um, Native American, you know, mm-hmm. populations. Like at, at Western, I know that mm-hmm. the Cherokee there we are on Cherokee land, and you know there are often. Um, Rumored sightings of the little people, uh, mm-hmm. even in some of the buildings on campus. So, yeah, that I know I, I wanted to point that out as well, that they're, you know, a product of a lot of kind of uh, over, I guess, overlapping of cultures that are in Appalachia. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, that's a great point. Another one that people are probably familiar with is the Wendigo, yeah. which mm-hmm. is also a Native American based Um, Cryptid or Creature, which has also showed up in a lot of very mainstream video games and stuff like that in different iterations. Mm -hmm. Thank you both for sharing about cryptids. Mm -hmm. I love when the guests want to talk about the folklore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So before we uh, kind of dive into more specifics about what's exactly in the edited volume, could you start by introducing our listeners to the place and concept of Appalachia. I know we're talking about it in terms of cryptids, but many people may not know where it is, what it is sort of what definition of Appalachia, if there is one, are you using to unify your collection?
2: I just want to start out um, kind of echoing what Laura was just discussing. Um, that like Appalachia, like every other kind of state or national border, is is very much a colonial construct, um, first and foremost. And so, you know, that's something that we should understand. Um, And there have been several boundaries over the last couple centuries, Um, most of them kind of stop at the Pennsylvania-West Virginia border or the Ohio border. Um, And so a lot of earlier maps um, don't include parts of central and northern Appalachia or even kind of the most southern areas um, that we include now. So even, for example, like the 1940 WPA maps um, actually split the region into Allegheny and Appalachia. And so there's a lot of contention about kind of what and who is contained in that definition. Um, The most inclusive seems to be the updated 2008 ARC maps and that's the Appalachian Regional Commission. Um, That's what we kind of tended to go by for this collection. But of course, you know, we can discuss this later, but, you know, the collection we also hope kind of stretches those boundaries a little bit. And of course, there are Appalachian writers talking about the region, uh, you know, from all over the world. Um, And so one thing that I do a lot and my research is kind of like, oh well, people are writing you know about the region from all of these very different places um you know, and some folks, for whatever reason, and there are a lot of reasons, you know, may not even consider themselves Appalachian writers. Yeah um I was gonna say, uh, you know, I think I talked about this a
3: little bit in the interview we just did an interview with a former graduate student here um, and I, kind of was talking about the idea. I think one of the best sort of, um, it's not even a definition, but ways of considering Appalachia is the way that Ashley York and Sally Rubin do in their documentary Hillbilly, Mm -hmm. which is very much kind of about, um, you know, Appalachia is always this sort of place of um, otherness that is often negatively coded um, through Images of poverty um, and generally whiteness as well, even though, of course, the region is so much of it is Native American. Uh, So many of the people who live here are African-American and other people of color. But this idea of, you know, Appalachia being that which is the abject in some way. So I don't to me, it's never I've never quite understood it as a as a place. Um, and yet I've been a part of it, I think, forever. I went to Appalachian State University. I'm, my family is from uh, this region since the 1700s. And I grew up in uh, Greensboro, which is the Piedmont. But um, And my parents very much tried to sort of erase their Appalachian-ness. And I've kind of, in coming back here, have very much tried to embrace it and, and try and understand kind of, you know, what is meant by being Appalachian so yeah
2: and I think too you know like I grew up largely in like the part of Ohio that is absolutely included in our boundaries um you know and and we were about an hour equidistant from West Virginia and eastern Kentucky but a lot of the people there um you know tend to resist the label my dad actually used to say he said nobody wants to be Appalachian until there's money involved (laughs) and You know, there was um, a a woman who taught women's and gender studies at the Chillicothe branch of Ohio University, um, Deborah Nichols, and she recently was doing this really interesting project where she was talking to her undergrad students about kind of what is Appalachian, do you consider yourself Appalachian, and some people were like oh, yeah, I could see that. But a lot of people were like, I had never considered myself Appalachian, um, you know, or you're sort of taught that you don't want to, right, because you go to other places. And I remember Ann Pancake years ago at an ASA uh, conference saying that, like, it seems like Appalachian people are one of the sort of, you know, last groups that it's okay to kind of make fun of. Mm. Um, and so she was saying that, like a lot of folks, she kind of you know, or a lot of folks deal with that, where it's like you don't want to necessarily say like, "Oh, you're Appalachian," because then people pull out all of these stereotypes.
1: Yeah, so I, I think we're we're kind of you're kind of hinting at a lot of these different things, but I, I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate a little bit more on some of those misconceptions or misunderstandings around. Um, both maybe the region or what it means to be appalachian um and how does your work you know try to challenge or work through some of those um misinformation aspects of it?
2: I will say that that Laura and I, when we were working on this collection, were very, very um aware and very intentional and wanting to push back against some of those stereotypes, Um, you know, especially because there have been, you know, eco-critical essays of Appalachian literature, but this is the first real collection um, that looks at, you know, the region's literature through an eco-critical lens. And knowing Mm -hmm. that we were kind of gonna be representative of the region because of that, we wanted to make sure, as as Laura was saying, that, you know, we had works by non-white authors, that we had, you know, queer authors work in there and that we were kind of trying to, um, you know, of course I think it's impossible to represent an entire region in, in any work, you know, can't mm-hmm. do that. Um, but we were at least trying to push back against some of those stereotypes. And there's a lot of people that are doing that work. I mean, you know, Tony Harkins, Meredith McCarroll, um, Marie Cochran does a lot of that through the black and Appalachia, you know, work that she does with artists. Um, you know, so there's a lot of folks really pushing back at that. And we kind of hope that this could be, you know, part of that of that movement as well, because there are a lot of ideas, right, that it's, it's super white, or that, you know, everybody here is like an evangelical Christian, or <laughs> that, you know, we're all just like coal miners, children or something. Like, um, I was talking to someone recently who works in the field, and, and they were, you know, sort of, talking about the field and seem to be expected to talk about coal mining and it's like that's that only happens in like a part of it you know like you (laughs) that's not happening where like we're at you know not to my knowledge I don't believe there's any coal mining in Asheville um you know and things like that and so there seem to be some of these things um you know going around that that people still have even in 2023 so Laura anything you want to add to that
3: yeah, I was gonna say this is this is sort of unrelated, but it's something that's bothering me. So I think I'm gonna go ahead and I'll just put it out there. I uh I got um a call for papers for a collection on um Appalachian animal studies. And it's actually it was from someone I, I know who is a scholar in the UK, and it was sort of framed as like, you know, having discovered like the, there is no work being done in this area. Therefore let's create this, you know, anthology. And I got it interestingly enough while I was at, um, an animal studies conference in Kentucky, <laughs> It's like these sort of regional Appalachian animal studies, um, conference called, yeah, is it, is knowing animals, I think. And, uh, I, I don't, it just was one of those moments where I was like, okay, so there's clearly interest, you know, that's coming from outside, which is great. And so I had this very bizarre kind of insider-outsider moment of being like, actually, this is something that exists and has existed. And people have been looking at these things for a long time. And I just, I didn't res- I didn't say anything to her. I didn't respond because I'm like, this is her project. But it felt a little bit like a, just, I don't know, a bit of, um, I felt dissociative somehow about it. <laughs> so I don't, that's not exactly the same thing. But I think it's also, again, just kind of, <laughs> maybe um this idea that that no one's doing any of this work already uh Mm -hmm. that kind of rubbed me the wrong way
2: yeah Mm -hmm. well and just to kind of think about kind of that insider outsider perspective right because I think that's that seems to be something that we think about as is like Appalachian studies scholars it's like oh you know is this person an outsider is this person an insider right but then it, one of the things that i think that our collection does um fairly well is kind of thinks about like okay well, like what does that look like you know and kind of really pushes back at that for example um you know we have a couple essays in there that talk about travel writing and travel writing you know, especially like they of people traveling to the mountains and just taking exploitative photos. And I mean, there's a very real history there, right, of, of mm-hmm. people kind of exploiting the region and then sharing these photos or, or, you know, writing about how, you know, these poor barefoot, you know, children are running around in the woods, frolicking and what have you. Right. So uh, but also thinking about like travel writing, people come to, you know, this area like. What kind of insights are they having, right? And and sometimes those insights are really important. Um, but I think there tends to be a lot of times this sort of push back against like outsider perspective. Um, and, and I kind of think that one thing that our our collection does is show that like that's not necessarily the case. Especially again, thinking about travel writing, thinking about um, uh, you know Carter Sickles' piece, "The Prettiest Star," right, which you know is is set largely in in rural Ohio. But the protagonist spends a ton of time in New York City, right? Mm -hmm. And that's one thing um, that Caleb when and he wrote that essay, you know, he's kind of looking at that as far as like, you know, a lot of times that protagonist feels kind of out of place, you know, in a home in Ohio, largely, you know, kind of rejected from family and community and felt more at home in New York City. And so I think that, you know, one thing that um some of these authors are doing and that their collection is trying to do is pushing back and kind of really questioning those those kind of insider, outsider binaries that that definitely are are real in the in Appalachian studies.
3: And I wanted, so sorry, I just <laughs> wanna one more time kind of <laughs> back off that I was just thinking um Jessica when you were talking about sort of the you know people coming in and uh, take like photographs, and you know what they're seeing and what they're projected. Um, I think very much of the photography of um James and Robin Thompson, who were situated in Knoxville uh, in the early part of the twentieth century, who came and sort of took a lot of photographs of the area that is now the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And what they were doing in some sense, was, you know, trying to convey that this land was beautiful and it needed to be preserved, while at the same time um, trying to illustrate that the land wasn't really good for anything except to be looked at or for animals to be, you know, living in it so that the, the um, government could then come in and buy the land at, you know, rock bottom prices from the people who had been there. And so to me, I mean, that always... I I just, whenever I think of images and they're beautiful photos, I mean, they're, they're absolutely gorgeous, but you know, they serve this very like duplicitous kind of role in Mm -hmm. the construction of the way we think about Appalachia and the way that people are displaced in order to have this nature that is the the great Smoky
0: Mountains national park. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say that all of, all of the things you both said is very, much my personal experience, as well as someone born and raised in north carolina the the two sides of what people often think when I say I'm from North Carolina and I'm located in Los Angeles now and have been for a number of years, is either people think of yes, the sort of like horror movie hillbillies in the woods with the banjo are gonna kill you, or they think of like, oh, the mountains, the beautiful like Hiking, it's really these two not 100% true lived experience sort of situations. It's sort of like either the beautification of the landscape and the wilderness availability, or it's the sort of scary mountain people. And so it has been very difficult to kind of explain to people anything about being someone from North Carolina. <laughs> um, and it, it's because it's really not a, I think, as you already mentioned, sort of Appalachia being this othered place, the sort of outcast places. Many Americans know nothing about it, even though it's located in this country. And I think that's difficult, you know, to then make a place for it, even in academia, because academia has priorities. Right. And even in America, Appalachia is sort of this special space. But I think the idea that you're working with in this edited volume of trying to expand, if we can say that sort of like look around what else can be included, is very you know, generative for everyone who's interested in studying it. So what are some of the, you already mentioned some of them, but what are some of the other methodologies that are happening in the chapters that are fruitful in the sort of broadening of Appalachia,
2: going global with Appalachia, thinking about it in different ways? Well, one thing that I think as far as kind of broadening Appalachia, um, and we, we see it, I think, a little bit in a couple of the essays, um, but just more broadly in Appalachian studies is kind of a, a transcontinental or transnational um, lens as far as kind of trans mountain cultures. Mm-hmm. So I know there's been a lot of work. Um, Catherine Ledford and Teresa Burris do an amazing job with like the Appalachian Carpathian conference. Um, and there was an international mountain conference in Switzerland or I'm sorry, Austria um, a few years back that also is, is doing a lot of work with that. And so I think there's a lot of connections that be made kind of across the um, other mountain cultures, I did a, a Zoom class visit with Dr. Uh, Jim Condi Sudikar's ethnic and multicultural studies and regional language, regional studies class up at Bluefield State, um, right on the cusp of Bluefield, West Virginia, slash Virginia. It's one of those cities that has two states. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had a student in the class from Morocco. And, you know, the student, they were using mountains piled up on mountains. Um and is kind of one of their texts, and his student from Morocco said, "You know, I see so many connections between the culture of the Atlas Mountains at home and what's going on here," and was really able to make a lot of connections, um, you know, to Appalachia and and kind of some of the the cultural aspects and the landscape because of his own experience in Morocco, and so I th- thought that was really interesting. Um, so I think that that's certainly a valuable tool because again you know, Appalachia can be kind of a niche thing, you know, it's like, it's like Appalachian studies and it's like, you know, it's a real thing. I promise people it is. Right. But, um, I think it's important to broaden it, right. Because it it a makes the field more relevant if, if we can kind of make these connections to other fields of studies. And then there's also a lot that we can learn from what other fields are doing, you know, that, that could help us, you know, in Appalachian studies as well.
1: Yeah. Um, so one thing I'd like to hear a little bit more about, um, you know, so for, for me, and I'll, I'll admit to maybe being, you know, one of those people that has perceptions, you know, whatever, like everybody else. Um, but when I think about specifically like the environmentalism of Appalachia, my brain – uh, so you know my experience in appalachia was very much coal and natural gas and the, the fracking and stuff like that um those were kind of the big environmental issues facing that that aspect of appalachia that i was in um but i would i would love to hear what are some of the other like environmental concerns i guess that some of the authors in the collection are are kind of tackling beyond that some of the ones that maybe people don't you know, like me default to when they think of the environmentalism of the region
3: the the essay that is about uh, Ron Rash's novels, I think again, I it- I, I'm I'm really interested, and, and I want to kind of clarify too that I, I don't consider myself really an Appalachian studies person or even a Southern uh, studies person. I'm a I'm a postcolonialist, and I do environmental studies. So I I feel like Jessica is probably you know much more able to talk about the work. She's she's been attached to this work for a really long time, and I kind of signed on late in the game um, to kind of help us get it across a very well-deserved finish line, <laughs> but I will say, you know, one of the things that I, I look at in the work I do in post-colonial studies um, and in environmental studies is this displacement of mm-hmm. peoples for the preservation of natural spaces. And I, I actually talk about this a lot. And, you know, that I was thinking of that essay specifically that deals with One Foot in Eden um, and Saints at the River, I think, and some of and also one of Ron's poems. And I, I I think of like the things, the lakes that we think about, like Joe in South Carolina is a lake that was created by flooding towns that were there. Of course, they were evacuated um, and whatever, but uh, uh, preserves in South Africa where people go on safari to see the animals or to kill them or whatever. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, the indigenous lands of African peoples who've been displaced from those spaces. And so I always try and like, and I mean, and I love, I love that. I love the idea of there being spaces where there are no humans. But I think that when we look at those spaces, we need to really interrogate what happened to the humans um, and, you know, what happened to the native peoples, what happened to um, people who lived there and, and were very poor, who farmed and, um whatnot so in a, and i'm not trying to say i don't i don't really necessarily think of uh appalachia as a post-colonial location i i have a little i, I resist that a little bit but i do think the parallels between the ways that people are displaced mm-hmm. in in various cultures uh in in the interest of preserving flora and fauna are are worth looking at so yeah
2: Absolutely. And I and I would I would agree with Laura that I know that there has been some sort of, you know, and, and I would say a fairly extensive um, you know, look at Appalachia as sort of a post-colonial place. And I I too take issue with that. Um, I have a forthcoming essay in which I, I take a great deal of issue with that, actually. And I'm not going to get <laughs> into it here. Uh, but as far as you know, kind of exploitation of, you know land and and water and things, um, in the region, we absolutely see, um, issues of damming, um, Mm -hmm. issues of, of sort of lakes, and and especially in the essay that, that Laura's talking about, um, by Elizabeth Aiken, where she's talking about, you know, kind of the damming of, of waters and the flooding and what that does to communities. Um, we see some other, uh, issues in, in sort of flooding. Um, so thinking about, um, you know, kind of tradition, uh, I'm sorry, thinking about flooding in the region, that's been a big one, Um, both in it, it appears in literature. And then as we saw in Kentucky, right, just last year, like it's a very mm. literal hazard. Um Of course, you do have, you mentioned Western, you know, Pennsylvania, of course, you do have a lot of the fracking up there. Um In fact, if you haven't, I would absolutely suggest um, the book Shale Play, which mm. is a, a collection of poems and photographs in the fracking field. Um, mm. It was a, Oh, it was, uh, it was Julia spicker Kastorf wrote the poems and I'm going to forget this man's last name, but it was Steven who who did the photographs and it's fantastic. Um, but there's, you know, of course you do have, you, you know, you go a little further South, you've got mountaintop removal, mm-hmm. um, and Ohio, we had a ton of issue with air pollution. Um, mm-hmm. my family lives in a, a paper town or, you know, a mm-hmm. smokestack town and, you know we grew up and the the mill would actually the you know all of the kind of things that would come out of the mill would would eat the clear coat off people's cars and it was well known that the mill would actually pay to have their employees cars clear coated because it was cheaper than having people complain to the EPA about it mm-hmm. um we also live not far from a uranium enrichment plant which they found mm-hmm. out a few years ago Um, had completely filled a middle school like two miles away with radiation despite the fact that Mm -hmm. it's been closed for years and you know you grew up like i grew up being told like don't go in the water or people would joke Mm -hmm. about like oh there's some weird looking fish in there because it's near the Mm -hmm. a plant and then you get older and you realize that like you know the ohio river is often one of the most if not the most polluted body of water in the country Mm -hmm. um But I also should say that, you know, a lot of the environmental issues that we see in Appalachia are also all over the place. You know, you want to talk Mm -hmm. about problems with uranium. I mean, let's go look at the Southwest. You know, you want to talk about issues with with water pollution. I mean, that happens, you know, all over the place. Plenty of places are also facing droughts and things like that. Um, And again, water contamination, we deal with that a good bit in Western North Carolina. People keep going down the French Broad River. I don't know why. I've seen the water reports, but they do, right? so um you know the a lot of it is linked to water but again we also have a lot linked to other things too i mean and and again when you start talking coal mining you start getting into kind of you know slurry ponds right Mm -hmm. and and runoff and things like that there's also issues of course getting more into laura's vein of of vegan studies here and and animal studies with kind of with you know livestock farming and some Mm -hmm. of the the implications of that i think you know I will say in North Carolina that seems to be a bigger issue sort of in the Piedmont and back east um just because we don't have quite the the flatlands to make these massive farms here but I I would argue that it's still a problem you know I mean we still had plenty of runoff issues in Ohio too so um but again I think it's also important to note that a lot of the issues that we see here are not just Appalachian problems right they're problems that we see in in plenty of other places
0: and I think that's a really excellent point and something that's really good to bring up in in an area studies context that at least in terms of the environmental implications and environmental studies in in an area studies environmental studies combination a lot of people get so focused on the the niche element that it can be difficult to remember that that is a global issue right like water pollution industrial pollution uranium and radiation pollution i study I study East Asia. And so for me, it's also very similar. I'm like, so I, I, some, I have some work on the meat industry in South Korea. And I'm like, yeah, cause I grew up in North Carolina where every in the lower part of North Carolina, where everything is poisoned by pig farms. So I'm really familiar with the lived experience of being in a place where the animal industry is contaminating everything. And so it's like, yes, of course the Korean context is different, But it's also the same. And so I think that that really works well with your goal to broaden Appalachian studies, right? Tying everything together with the environmental theme, essentially. I was going to, one other thing to sort of add, I think,
3: you know, in looking at these issues as kind of global issues is... um, Something that uh, Rob Nixon calls the environmentalism of the poor, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, this idea that uh, the poor are often environmentalists because they have to be in order (laughs) to survive because the people impacted by environmental crises are by and large the poor. And I was just thinking um, we had some really serious flooding here in 2021, I think. It, and like literally where I am, which is in Candler and Canton, uh, the town that's like right up the road from me that has a huge paper mill and the which is closing, which is an interesting thing, too, because you've got all these people. It's the largest employer in Canton. Fifteen hundred people work there and they're all about to lose their jobs and the mill itself has been a huge polluter of the region. Um, The EPA did step in back years ago, and they did clean up things considerably. But, you know, it's been an environmental nightmare, but it's also an environmental nightmare that uh, people's livelihoods have depended on for, like, generations. Mm -hmm. It's been there forever. And anyway, that was a little bit off topic. But I I was just, again, kind of thinking about the conflict between, um, you know, something that is good for the environment and, you know, getting rid of of a place like that. And then at the same time, potentially ruining the lives of people who are very much embedded in this, that particular part of Western North Carolina, which is also mm-hmm. a, a relatively poor part of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And when Canton flooded, I mean, it, it looked like, it, it looked like a war zone. I've never seen anything mm-hmm. like it. And it is still... There are still places out there that are just devastated and will never be you know rebuilt and i I just think, yeah, again, all of these things are so enmeshed and linked together yeah.
2: well and just to since you brought up the paper mill closing you know some of the things that are coming in the wake of that are oh, look, we can use this area for environmental tourism, right? But mm-hmm. then you also have a lot of developers that are like, oh, look, we can put more, you know, look, we can, <laughs> you could have these. I just saw yesterday they were talking about like, oh, you could have like riverfront homes. And it's like, do these people not know how badly that flooded? I mean, it's like, like, as, as Laura mentioned, I mean, I, you know, I drive a lot of times through Canton. I live in Silva mm-hmm. and my son goes to school in Candler. And so we drive through Canton to take him to school. And they're absolutely places that are just, mm-hmm. will never be the same. I mean, we've, mm-hmm. I've been absolutely decimated. And here come these developers, you know, like, oh, look, you know, the pollution's mm-hmm. gone now. People want to live here now. Let's just put up these, you know, riverfront homes. And it's just, you know, it, it's just kind of compounding. Mm-hmm. you know, the issue I think mm-hmm. for a lot of, a lot of folks.
1: Mm. Yeah. And I think, I think it mm. speaks a lot to just the the complicated like ecosystem of the space as well. Cause it's um, where, so in Western PA, where I went to grad school, um, the, the town right below, uh, so, I mean, actually like, so Indiana PA is kind of sandwiched between two coal, coal plants. Um, and, uh, one of them was like, I think it was like either the highest polluter in the state or the second, high, it was like a really bad coal plant. And I just saw something like a, a couple of weeks ago that it's, it's shutting down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my first instinct is like, Heck yeah. Like that's amazing. I, I'm so okay. excited. Um, cause I, I developed really bad asthma just like through grad school, um, living in that region and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's like, you, you kind of, after that initial kind of reaction response, you kind of think, well, all right, yeah. What, what are we doing to help those people that are losing their jobs that are losing their okay. livelihoods? Um, and I think, I think it's, it's a thing that often, um, you know, especially in our, our, area in our field, um, can be really, really easy to forget about, you know, we, we see the victory in terms of the environmental victory, but we forget about those kind of rippling impacts and stuff of, of what it has to the people who still live in those areas and mm-hmm. still have to, you know, figure out their mm-hmm. next steps and stuff like that.
0: Although it's not exactly the same, I think you feel like it is related to kind of what you discuss in your chapter, Jessica, in the edited volume about the impacts of people, Bringing up issues with workplaces or, you know, the sort of precariousness of the situation of people who are impoverished having to make choices about, you know, working in a polluted environment, working for a polluter or not having food or Mm -hmm. being, you know, cast out of their community. Would you tell us a little bit about your chapter?
2: Sure. So my chapter focuses on um sort of an eco-feminist reading of Robert Geith's uh Trampoline, which is the, the first in his his wonderful, wonderful series. Um and in trampoline it sort of sets the stage that uh the protagonist, um Dawn, uh you know, her grandmother is kind of fighting um against you know, the mining of this, this mountain and their community. And her grandmother gets a lot of pushback and faces a lot of violences mm-hmm. and things in the community for really, you know, pushing back to preserve this mountain. And, and Dawn sees that, you know, and she sees how hard, and it's one of the things I love about that novel, um, and, and the series more broadly is it's, it's a very sort of feminist Appalachian, um, you know, series. And I, I believe, Laura, you've taught trampoline, haven't you? Yeah, I was thinking so. Yeah,
3: yeah and it teaches really well. It's, a, it's really weird. It's, um if, I don't know if you know it, that you two who, mm-hmm. who are not talking about tra- it, uh It's, it's, I don't want to call it a graphic novel because it isn't, uh but Robert Guy has illustrated it throughout. And it's just mm-hmm. these really kind of hilarious drawings of this, this teenage girl who, I mean, I I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. He said that he wrote it basically based on um, students that he was teaching at a community college in Kentucky. He came in and spoke to us. And yeah, my students either love it or hate it. And uh, Mm -hmm. I I mean, which is the fact that anyone would hate it kind of blows my mind. (laughs) Because to me, it's just like so funny and weird Mm -hmm. and sad. And it's just got all the things. But yeah, it's a it's a great book, I think.
2: Absolutely. It's, it's amazing. And his drawings are so fantastic, but I think I I resonated a lot with, with the, the protagonist of that, you know, she's sort of this, like, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say like, like, like sort of punk rock ish, you know, kind of misanthrope kind of character with, you know, with, and also it's growing up in an area where it's like not a whole lot to do except for, you know, Go on four wheelers and drink beer, mm-hmm. um, and so I think that again I, I resonated with that a lot. Um, but also uh, the idea that you know a lot of people in Appalachia are really, as as you pointed out, Lindsay, kind of torn between I have to pay my bills and I have to eat. And yes, I work for a massive polluter. I mean, the town that I'm from in Chillicothe, um, to get back to the Canton Mill, the paper plant in our town is about three times the size of the one in Canton. Um, I don't know what that is in numbers for people that are not there, but it's it's massive. Um, and I have several friends who work for it, you know. And and it's a really it, it's a it's one of the few employers where you can make a good living, and you know, not have to really have a college degree. Actually, a, a gentleman that I was friends with that we we used to work together twenty years ago, and we're still acquaintances. He reached out to me on Facebook, and you know, we're kind of chit chatting and catching up a little bit. And he said, "Man, I'm one of the highest, pe- you know, highest paid people at the mill now." And I said, "Well, Chris, how, what are you doing? You know, because last I heard, he was a forklift driver and a terrible one that had like <laughs> run a forklift off the end of an 18-wheeler, and it was he had it was it was rough for him." And you know, I said, "What are you doing?" He said, "I'm making the chemicals that make the paper." And mm. I said, "Well, that's interesting, you know." And I said, "How how did you get that?" He said, "Well, the guys on the forklift, dock found that, uh, that I had a degree. And I said, Chris, your degree is an associate's in criminal justice. And he's like, (laughs) I was the only one on the forklift dock with a degree. So they let me make the chemicals Mm -hmm. and make the paper, you know? And so it's one of those things where like, you know, yes, arguably they might want to hire a chemical engineer, but if you can train this guy to do it, you know, and it's really good money for him and it's less than what you're going to pay a chemical engineer, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's, it's Mm -hmm. a really good way, you know, for people to, to support their families, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and and things like that. And so, and largely the town is, is a manufacturing town. Um, you know, we also have a Kenworth, um, Mm -hmm. a big Kenworth factory. There a lot of places that make parts for Kenworth. Mm -hmm. And so, a lot of these things, like, yes, there absolutely is are issues with industrial runoff. There's absolutely terrible, you know, uh, issues with, with air pollution. But if you're asking somebody to take a pay cut when your only other option is maybe service work or like, you know, in sales, if you're lucky, and that's paying a fifth of what you make. You know, I mean, we talk about like coal mining, you know how much coal miners make? Like a killing, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking, you know, and especially in places where the cost of living is is pretty low, mm-hmm. that goes a long mm-hmm. way, you know. Like mm-hmm. southern Ohio, you know, my sister bought a house not long ago, a nice three bedroom, two bath mm-hmm. kind of 1950s place with a nice fenced in yard and a decent mm-hmm. neighborhood for 120 thousand. Mm-hmm. Try to do that anywhere, you know. <laughs> Heck, try to do that in Western North Carolina, and you will no. you will be very no. very sad, right? It doesn't yeah. you can't do that here, so. I think that's the thing is that you combine a low cost of living with these jobs that, that pay really well, not only for that area, but just in general. And, and at the end of the day, people are going to side with what pays their bills and what feeds their families. And Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, we can't really blame people for that, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that's what makes working in our, in our field so hard. Sometimes I think is seeing like, Oh man, would it be great if the paper mill shut down? Yes. Mm -hmm. I might finally be able to go to my, my family's, you know, Christmas or whatever, and not have to smell the town 10 miles out coming in. But like, what is that going to do, you know, for, for the people in that area? Like, where are you going to mm-hmm. go where you can have a similar low cost of living um, and, and things like that? So it's, it's a really tricky thing that I I really resonate with um, trampoline in that way, because it, mm-hmm. it is a very real, um you know, problem definitely throughout the mm-hmm. region. But I would, I would say probably again, and in, in other areas as well. hmm.
1: Awesome. Well, well, thank you. It, it, it is time, I think, to, to shift to end on a roll. Um, but is there anything else that either of you, you know, we're hoping to have the opportunity to share that you'd like to uh, share with our listeners at all about the work or about the collection or anything?
3: I just want to again kind of go on record saying that Jessica has done the heavy lifting <laughs> on this. I feel, I mean, I feel sort of like guilty uh getting any credit credit at all. Uh she's, you know, like I said, she's been trying to get this this book published for a long time and has done so much work and so much revision and so much cutting and and resoliciting essays. And so it's just um yeah, I am so proud of it, but I'm mm-hmm. I'm actually just proud of Jessica for, for the work, which I think is mm-hmm. so important as well. So yeah, I just wanted to get, I
2: wanted to yes. that. So, you know. I would like I would like to push back against Laura, who <laughs> apparently doesn't think that she did anything. Um You know, Laura, Laura came in and brought all of this amazing eco-critical expertise. I mean, she has like, I don't know, more monographs than like anybody I know at this point. You know, there are other hobbies, Laura. I'm glad that you're painting more. But um, (laughs) but really, you know, it's... She did so much, you know, she came in and was like, okay, like, you know, this needs revised in this way. And and we really need to bring in these people and really, you know, really help shape the project um, in ways that I'm very, very, very appreciative of and really got this across the finish line and, and really should take more credit. So take more credit, Laura.
3: Okay. (laughs) I
0: appreciate that.
2: (laughs) And we're, we're really happy that we could have you both on.
0: So we can put a spotlight on both of your hard work to bring this finally into the world. So people have access to all this incredible scholarship. So yeah. thank you for joining us.
1: Yeah. And if, if anybody else out there needs a, a nice mediator to facilitate conversations about, you know, mm-hmm. the work that you do, then yeah, we're happy to have you on here and you can each, <laughs> you know, kind of say how well the other we're... person's doing. And yeah, that's, that's, that's our new mission here at, at, oh. ECOcast. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's, let's move on to, uh, end on a roll. Uh, so I've got a 12 sided die here. I'm going to, uh, we're going to do two separate tosses. We've got two guests. Um, so both of you will answer both questions just to, you know, keep it fair. Um, so our first question is number 11. What's one fun piece of trivia about each of you?
2: Trivia, trivia, trivia. Um, I have over 46 hours of tattoo work on my body.
1: All right. All right. That's,
2: I,
0: that's a good one. That's, a fun yeah. fact, I guess. That's, mm-hmm. yeah. We can keep it on tattoo themes mm-hmm. if Laura wants to. Laura has tattoos. <laughs> okay. No, we'll do that. Um, this
3: is not a fun piece of trivia. It's a weird piece of trivia, but I think it's it's also important. I Any, any platform I get to tell this story, I tell it. Um, I had a massive heart attack in, Mm. uh, 2014, 2013, sorry. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was 42 years old. Mm -hmm. I'm a long distance runner, non-smoker, vegan. Mm -hmm. I'm exactly the person who's not supposed to have a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And I had what is called a spontaneous coronary artery dissection. Uh, the acronym Mm -hmm. is SCAD and Mm -hmm. it is a condition that, um, largely had not been studied or understood because it, it, it impacts women more specifically, Mm -hmm. almost entirely. Mm -hmm. And, um, Mm -hmm. the mortality rate is something like 90%. It's ridiculously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, I got airlifted from, uh, the university, which is where where it happened to, uh, the mission hospital in Asheville Mm
2: -hmm. and
3: I almost died and it was, uh, the most surreal and terrifying thing that's ever happened. And I made a promise to myself that if I lived a year after I would get um, a tattoo of the queen of hearts on my shoulder. So I have, oh, I know. Nice. Um, so that's, that's my tattoo story. And it's also, when anyone asks me about it, I will tell them because I think that um, mm-hmm. women's heart attacks are Often unrecognized, often mm-hmm. downplayed. Mm-hmm. I know so mm-hmm. many women who have been told that, you know, they're just being hysterical and to go home mm-hmm. and take it. Home.
1: So, yeah. yeah. Um, See,
0: that ended up being a great fact. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah I appreciate you sharing that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So here's number two, question number two, not actually question number two. Well, unless it comes up as number two, then it will <laughs> also be question number two. Um, but it is number eight Mm -hmm. so uh which environmental so this could be an author an artist a theorist someone that's doing work in the environmental humanities at least adjacently um would you recommend to somebody someone that that maybe they are not as familiar with or haven't heard of that you think would be worth checking out
2: yeah so i am actually um reading um Karen Amamato Ingersoll's *Waves of Knowing: A Seascape Epistemology*, um, which takes a Kanaka-specific approach to the Blue Humanities, and um, mm. and I, I'm reading it for one of my dissertation chapters right now, and it is amazingly um, wonderful, and I would highly recommend folks check it out, um, especially if you're looking for a really interesting Blue Humanities perspective. <laughs>
0: we've had a bunch of blue Humanities scholars recently. So that would be mm-hmm. great. Hopefully yeah. the people can add that to their list.
3: Absolutely. Um, okay. So do I only, can I just say one person or can mm-hmm. I say one person? If, okay. if you
1: Yeah. Go, go nuts.
3: <laughs> okay, so, I mean, I, I have, I know a lot of people in this, this sort of world, I guess, um, from having been in it for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh so I would I would recommend the work of Greta Gard over probably anybody mm-hmm. else out there doing work in eco-feminism, uh eco-criticism, veganism. Uh mm-hmm. she's and she's also a really good friend of mine. Um I would also recommend uh AFCO, who wrote a book not too long ago called racism as zoological witchcraft Mm. it it is it is such a cool book and she's so smart and she's uh just i i had she asked me to review it so i got to review it but her work on sort of black veganism is uh really important and interesting so these are you know vegan studies vegan Mm -hmm. scholars sort of doing animal studies work uh, and then I, I will have, sorry, I'm going to keep going. The, going, the last yeah. person I'll say is Carol Adams, whose work, The Sexual Politics of mm. Me, basically mm-hmm. changed the trajectory mm-hmm. of my life. And she is also mm-hmm. a good friend and a mentor. And I just, so I think those are some important people to read. Mm-hmm. Definitely.
0: And speaking of recommending people, how can our listeners find out more about you two? So if you have social media, if you have a website, if you just, solicit emails to your, you know, university email. What's a good way people can find out more about you or contact you?
3: Well, I would say I had a Twitter account, but I've effectively decided that I'm getting rid of it because yeah, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I can't can't deal with it anymore. Um, I have an Instagram account, which Mm -hmm. is Poco Ecofem P-O-C-O-E-C-O-F-E-M is my, my Instagram Mm -hmm. handle, but I don't really post anything up there about my, scholarly work i just post art so that's that one and my university email if anyone wants to ask me questions or say hi or whatever is l w r i g h t w-r-g-h-t at wcu.edu
2: yeah so i have i do have a Twitter. you know i i like a good rant um and so <laughs> my my twitter and instagram are eco book lover all one word um and then I do have a website at Corey, um, dot com, And if people, you can contact me through there, or you can email me here at um, cory. So it's J-S-C-O-R-Y at W-C-U dot E-D-U. Um, and I will warn again on the Instagram, I don't really post anything interesting. It's lots <laughs> of garden pics this time of year. Like my tatsoi is coming up. So it's like, mm. if you're big into arugula pictures, That you can absolutely, you know, check it out.
1: (laughs) Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Well, and again, we'll be sure to have all that stuff in the show notes as well. Well, (laughs) Thank you both again for being here. It's been a great episode. We really appreciate your, you taking your time out of your, your day, especially this time of year, which is super hectic for us in academia. So we, we really appreciate that. Um, and thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of ECOCAST. If you've got an idea for an episode, either you want to feature your own work or you would like for us to reach out to somebody, you can get us at our Twitter, uh, Asley underscore ECOCAST. And then uh, there's a a link tree on there that has a a link to our uh, Google form and our email and all that stuff. You can also email us directly, asley.ecocast at gmail.com.
0: If you enjoy listening to Ecocast, you can help us reach a larger audience by liking, sharing, tweeting, etc. about today's show. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.